next reading, our New Testament reading, comes from Philippians. Philippians chapter 3, in particular the first 11 verses, but I'd like to read a few verses from Philippians chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1, verses 27 through 30 say this. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. And then jumping to chapter 3. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me, and it is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision, who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law, a Pharisee. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection of the dead. So far, the reading of God's holy word. Let's pray together. Well, I titled this sermon, A Tale of Two Righteousnesses, knowing that righteousnesses isn't necessarily a word, but it gives us this idea that there are two paths that are being laid out here. There's either a righteousness that comes by the law through obedience to the law, which is really no way of salvation. It's a sham. It's impossible. And Paul wants to say there's no hope in it at all. And the other way is by faith through a righteousness that's given to us through Jesus Christ. If we were to ask most people today, how are you right with God, we would probably get a variety of answers. We may get the answer, well, just do your best. We may get an answer that indicates something to the effect of, well, God helps those who help themselves. Others may say there is no God, so don't even worry about it. Others, of course, would say all roads lead to God. And most people, I think, would say that, you, again, you just have to do some kind of do your best and God will be pleased with that. And this text doesn't allow for any of that, and scripture doesn't allow for any of that, and Paul's writings in particular don't allow for any of that. As a Presbyterian church, you believe wholeheartedly in the solas of the Reformation. We believe that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, for the glory of God alone, and according to the word of God alone. And any of these other ways are false gospels or false hopes 
And we have the obligation as uh, Christians, we have the obligation as ministers of the gospel to make sure that we proclaim the truth that there is only one way of salvation, and that's through Jesus Christ, and there's only one way to be right with God, and that is through faith in Jesus Christ. And so there's really no self-salvation or really no way to even contribute to our salvation. We recognize that salvation from beginning to end is a gift. As we just read, uh, or as we were just saying in, in the psalm, it says, salvation to his people God will give. From beginning to end, he has made a covenant, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, to give salvation to his people. Not just to provide a way of salvation, but to actually save them. And so I'd like to look at three things as we go through this passage this morning. A tale of two righteousnesses, if you will. Paul's warning as a pastor, Paul's resume as a Pharisee, and Paul's accounting as a Christian. So Paul's warning as a pastor, Paul's resume as a Pharisee, and Paul's accounting as a Christian. First, Paul's warning as a, as a, as a pastor. He recognizes there, there's false teaching and there's false doctrine going uh, around and a tendency for people to be tricked into or trapped into or fooled into going back to the old covenant, their laws and their ceremonies as a need and as a way of salvation. They taught, they were teaching that Gentiles must first become Jews and then observe all the Old Testament ceremonies in order to either be saved or to maintain their salvation. And Paul has said over and over that this is abhorrent to him. That is a anathema. It's a different gospel. If it's Christ plus something, then it's a false gospel. It's Christ alone that Paul has proclaimed. He is our salvation. He is our righteousness. He is our sacrifice for sin. Paul could rejoice if people even preached the true gospel from false motives, but he never took any joy in someone preaching a false gospel. As a matter of fact, Galatians really says, Who has bewitched you, O Galatians? It's a different gospel. Let them be anathema, anyone who teaches or preaches a different gospel. And here he is, a pastor, coming along and warning people of a false gospel. And so he gives three bewares. He says, beware of the dogs, beware of the evildoers, and beware of those who mutilate the flesh. What did those mean? First of all, when he says, beware of the dogs, at the time that really was a term of derision. We often think of dogs as our nice cuddly pets that we love and like to have around us. But really there, it was an image of anything that is, and anything unworthy to receive something holy. They were ritually unclean. Dogs were. They ate anything, including dead animals. They ate human corpses. Uh, often they ate their own vomit. They were known as being outside of the covenant. So it's ironic that what Paul is saying here is that those of you who think you are inside are actually outside if you believe this. If you believe that you can be righteous or you become righteous or right with God through keeping the law or through obedience to the law or if you're trying to deceive others into going back to the law in that sense. He says they're the dogs. He's actually turning the tables. He's being very ironic. Those who thought they were in are are being shown to be outside. He said, so beware of those. Beware of those who do that. He also said, beware of the evildoers. It's also ironic, again, because those who are teaching this false gospel thought that they were do-gooders. But they were actually the ones who were doing evil because they were adding works or ceremonies to the salvation that comes to us alone through Jesus Christ. Their emphasis on the works of the law turns into a self-reliance, or it turns into a self-righteousness, or it turns into a self-salvation project and takes away from the glory and the majesty 
of Jesus Christ. It also takes away from the awareness of our own sin and misery apart from Jesus Christ. And so Paul is warning, hey, watch out for those dogs. Watch out for those evildoers. And then he says also, watch out for those who mutilate the flesh, or really the mutilation. This is a play on words that would have been quite scathing to the group that had been to the Jews who were teaching this doctrine, who were of the circumcision party. And they were relying on their circumcision and works of the law to save them. But it was really, circumcision was a sign and seal of the righteousness that Abraham had by faith. And so if they weren't doing that in faith and they weren't looking to it by faith, then really what Paul is saying is that that circumcision that you're relying on, that circumcision that you think marks you out or gives you some special privilege, if that's not received in faith, if that's not done looking to the person and work of Jesus Christ alone, then you are actually the mutilation. And the word that he uses there conjures up an image of those who in pagan practices would cut themselves to try to appease their gods. If we remember when Elijah had the battle on Mount Carmel with the prophets of Baal there, and that they were cutting themselves, they were mutilating their flesh, they were trying to appease their god in one way or another. And so here Paul is saying, hey, that special privilege of being a circumcision, if that's not done through faith, if that's not done well, looking to Christ alone uh, as the author and perfecter and finisher of the faith, then you really are the mutilation. You aren't the circumcision. One theologian said, although national identities and sacred ceremonies are not viewed as bad in and of themselves, they are rejected as the foundation for one's relationship with God or fellow believers. In other words, what Paul's saying here is that Jesus plus or minus anything is a false gospel. If you're adding something to Christ alone for our salvation, you're adding works, you're adding rituals, you're adding ceremonies, you're adding uh, your own cooperation, or if you're taking away from that in any way, you're preaching a false gospel. And Paul wants them to be aware of that. He cares for them. There's all kinds of false doctrine and false teaching going around in his day and our day as well. And so then he goes on to say, we are the circumcision. This is remarkable as he's writing to a Gentile church that has both Jews and Christians in it, and he says, we are the circumcision. Not the ones who thought they were, but we are. We who worship by the Spirit of God, we glory or boast in Christ, and we put no confidence in the flesh. Note the Trinitarian nature of what Paul is highlighting here in terms of our salvation. We worship by the Spirit, the Holy Spirit of God the Father, And we boast or glory in Christ. Really, this is highlighting the reality that the worship that we have doesn't come through our works of the law or our nature or our efforts or anything. It comes from the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. Paul has been highlighting the realities of the new covenant. That no longer are our hearts uncircumcised, but they have been circumcised. Our hearts of stone have been taken away and we've been given a heart of flesh and the Holy Spirit lives within us. He's the one who's regenerated us. He's the one who's made us alive. He's the one who's even given us the faith to be able to call out on the name of Jesus. And so he's recognizing that we, all of those who are of the household of faith, the heirs of Abraham, the true circumcision, are those who, like Abraham, believed God. And it was counted to them as righteousness. We are the ones who worship by the Spirit of God. We are the ones who glory and boast not in our works, Not in our cooperation, not in our law-keeping, but in Christ. In Christ Jesus, in him alone. And he says quite clearly, we put no confidence in the flesh. 
And so he's really saying here, beware of those who are trusting in themselves, beware of those who are adding to or taking away from Christ, and beware of those who are putting confidence in the flesh. Rather, we are the ones who worship by the Holy Spirit. The third person of the Holy Trinity dwells within you. And we glory and boast not in ourselves, but only in Christ, and him crucified, risen, and reigning. And we put no confidence in the flesh. Again, it was... 1,500 years before the Reformation, but he could have said, you have been saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, for the glory of God alone, according to the word of God alone, couldn't he? So here's a pastor, he wants to warn them. He wants to warn them about the false doctrines and the false gospel that are pervasive in his day and in our day as well. But second, he goes on to talk about his resume as a Pharisee. He's saying here, really, look, if someone could have confidence in the flesh... I could. I even all the more. But that may sound kind of braggadocious to us or what have you, but Paul could back it up. It's not bragging, they say, if you can back it up, and he could. He's saying, if anybody could have confidence in the flesh, I could. And let me give you my resume. Let me tell you about my life, both my privileges of my heritage and the privileges of my accomplishments. And he lists seven things. Four of them are really his birthright, and three of them are his accomplishments. He says, first, I was circumcised the eighth day, which is a precise fulfillment of the law, right? And this isn't something he did on his own, right? He didn't tell his parents on day six, hey, two days from now I need to be circumcised, right? This is something that was done, and it's an exacting fulfillment of the law. According to Leviticus 12.3, he was circumcised on the eighth day. He also said he's an Israelite. He's one of the chosen people of God. He is a racial descendant of Abraham. It was a privilege. It was an honor. They are the chosen people. They were the heirs of the promises. They were the heirs of the law. They were the heirs of the covenant. He's recognizing these privileges he has just by birth and by God's providence. Not only was he circumcised on the eighth day, not only is he an Israelite, but he's of the tribe of Benjamin. Right? The son of Jacob's favorite wife, Rachel, who actually died while giving birth to Benjamin. It was the only son who was born in the promised land. It's the tribe of Israel's first king. Saul's name probably comes from that as well. He's named after that king. That tribe had remained faithful when others did not in a rebellion against David. And the borders of the city of Jerusalem itself and the temple are in her midst. Circumcised on the eighth day, an Israelite, a tribe of Benjamin. Then he says, a Hebrew of Hebrews. In other words, he's not a mixed breed. He's pure blood. He's unspoiled, unsoiled, unblemished. Most likely, he's a native Aramaic and Hebrew speaker, even though he came from Greek-speaking Tarsus. He's a Hebrew of Hebrews. He's a Hebrew par excellence. If anybody has all the right pedigree, it's him. Circumcised on the eighth day, an Israelite of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. And those are all privileges of birth, his birth in particular. But then he goes on to talk about things that he had accomplished, things that he had done with those privileges that he had. He said, as to the law, a Pharisee. Right? In our day, calling someone a Pharisee is a derogatory term, but in his day, that was a good thing. They were considered... Uh, separate and pure. 
They knew the law. They observed the law. They cared about the law. They sought to do those things which pleased the Lord. And it wasn't only those things that were commanded in Scripture, but they had hundreds of other laws that Paul is saying that he obeyed those and honored those as well. Christ's words when he said, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven, carry a great weight. Here's someone who really cared about the law and really cared about righteousness and sought to live after them. That's why you remember the disciples were a bit perplexed when Jesus had said that. Like, better than that? Because here's someone who took it really seriously and endeavored to live a holy life as he understood it. So he said, as to the law of Pharisee, exacting compliance, obedience. He also said, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church. In other words, he wasn't on the sidelines. He wasn't an armchair quarterback. He wasn't engaged only on Saturdays. He was fully involved. He was a persecutor of the church. He thought the church was a sect. He thought it was blasphemous. He thought it was heresy. He thought it was needed to be stopped. You remember he stood there at the stoning of Stephen and gave approval of what was going on. We need to stop this Christian sect. We need to stop them proclaiming that the Messiah has come. We need to stop them from proclaiming Jesus is the only way. We need to stop them from talking about the resurrection from the dead. He was zealous to stop this because he thought he was doing the Lord's will. He thought he was doing good. He thought he was on the side of the angels. He wasn't just sitting idly by. He was fully engaged. And then he says, as to righteousness, blameless. In other words, he was without reproach. He was faultless. He was without guilt or without defect. This doesn't mean he was sinless. Of course, as a Pharisee, he understands and even participated in weekly or yearly or even monthly rituals that recognize that we are sinners and we need a savior or we need Atonement, or we need a sacrifice provided for us. So by saying this, he's not saying I'm sinless any more than David or Job did when they made the same claim. What he's saying is that really, I don't, nobody could bring any charge against me. Nobody would be able to bring any charge against Paul or, or Saul that would have stuck. He's blameless. Nothing could be brought against him in any way. His nomination for any higher office would have been greenlit, of course. He's a great guy. He's done all of these things. So he's saying when he's giving his resume, right, that he has these privileges, circumcised on the eighth day, an Israelite of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, and his accomplishments as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness, blameless. But then something changed. Everything changed when he encountered the crucified and risen Savior on the road to Damascus. Although he could confidently boast in all of these things, he came to realize that before God they were not only useless, but that they were damning. Paul eventually would call himself the foremost of all sinners. Here's someone who had just confessed that he was blameless. And when he understands the holiness of God and when he understands the righteousness that comes to us in Christ and when he has an encounter with the saving grace and mercy of God in Christ through the Holy Spirit, he recognizes that he was the chief of all sinners. 
He had been trying to persecute this sect. He has been trying to stop it. He had been trying to stop the gospel from going out. And he says, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ, he says in verse 7. Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. This is an accounting term. He's starting to think in terms of how do you account for or reckon these things. He starts to say, whatever I had in my profit column, my power, my prestige, my birthright, my privileges, my faithfulness, my works, my obedience, everything that I thought was in my pro column, my asset column, is really in my debt column. It's really a loss compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ. Whatever I had, I no longer recognize it as, that's good, I just need to add Christ to it. It's that's actually in the debit column. The, the loss column, the debt column. He, he, he builds on what he was saying. In verse 7 he said, Whatever gain I had, I count as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. You hear him building up this idea of what he had before is loss compared to Christ. And then he builds on it. Everything is lost compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Christ Jesus, my Lord, as it's laid out there, is the only time it appears that way in the New Testament. Certainly, obviously, only time on Paul's lips. Don't miss the significance of this. Here's one who is a Pharisee, trained in the law, knew the law, knew the prophets, knew the Psalms, was looking for and anticipating the Messiah coming. And now he's recognizing that Jesus is that Messiah. Prior to his encounter with Christ on the road to Damascus, he was persecuting that. He was saying that was a lie, that that hadn't happened, that the Messiah hadn't come, and that those who said such things ought to be put to death. And now he's recognizing him as the Christ. And he calls him Jesus, which means Savior. He's recognizing that he needs a Savior and that Jesus is that Savior, and he calls him my Lord. That's very personal. That's familial. He's recognizing that he's not just a savior, but my savior as well. Indeed, I count everything as a loss compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. And that knowing there isn't just knowing the right facts, which of course is true, but he's saying that he knows him. He knows Christ. He knows Jesus. He knows him as Lord. That's personal. That's covenantal. That's familial. He's recognizing that he is his Savior, that he is his Lord, that he is the Messiah, that he is the promised one, that he has come. And that was a gift given to him. On the road to Damascus, he was struck blind. And Christ said, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And he gave him life. He gave him eyes to see. He gave him a new heart. He gave him ears to hear. He gave him faith. The one who is persecuting the church is now going to be an apostle of the church. Paul goes on to say, For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as rubbish. He just kind of keeps on building on to what he's saying. Paul compares everything that he had is really rubbish. It's dung. It's garbage. It's filthy rags. And count them all as rubbish compared to the surpassing worth of Christ. And when Paul said that he had suffered the loss of all things, 
This isn't a theoretical possibility, but a real loss. Think of his life before Damascus and after Damascus. He was well-respected in the community. He was on the fast track to success. He had power. He had influence. He had prestige. And yet, when Christ called him, he lost his power. He lost his influence. He lost his prestige in the community. He literally lost the skin off his back numerous times. He lost his liberty. He's writing this letter from a Roman prison. He lost his safety. He lost his security. He lost his ease. (laughs) He'd been shipwrecked. But none of that compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. He said, for his sake I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as dung to be found in him, in Christ, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. And this is the crux of the matter. This is what Paul's been building to. This is the heart of the gospel. This is the heart of the doctrine of justification. When I titled the sermon, A Tale of Two Righteousnesses, it's most clear right here. He's not found having a righteousness of his own that comes from the law, but a righteousness that comes from God through faith in Christ. By works of the law, Scripture says, no one will be made righteous. It's an impossibility. We're already dead in our trespasses and sins in Adam. We're already under condemnation. We're born dead in our trespasses and sins. There's no hope for the law to save us. The law is good and holy and it is true, but it's not salvific. It points to our need for a Savior. It tells us why we need to be saved. It reveals to us the holiness of God's character, but the law cannot and does not save. By works of the law, no one will be justified before the Lord. It's so contrary to our nature. Most of the time we think, well, I'm kind of there. I just need a little more help, or I'm partway there, and God can help me. God helps those who help themselves. We can't help ourselves. And Paul is saying here, to be found in Christ, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law. Everything he had rehearsed in his resume. But that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. So here he's comparing and contrasting an achieved righteousness versus a received righteousness. The achieved righteousness would be through our own works or through our own cooperation which is a sham. It is impossible for one to be saved or made right with God by that way. As a matter of fact, the more you do it, the more you're heaping up condemnation on yourself in reality. But he said, rather, there's a righteousness, the righteousness from God, which is a gift. Rather than being from the law, this righteousness is from God, and God provides it to us. The righteousness is a gift of ours in Christ Jesus. You know, I grew up in a church where I heard about the forgiveness, that Jesus died of the forgiveness of my sins. And I believed that as long as I can remember. But I did not hear about the imputed righteousness of Christ until I was 20 years old. And that was a complete game changer. To realize that not only did Jesus die to pay the penalty for our sins, but he also lived a life of perfect righteousness in our stead as our substitute 
And that obedience is credited to our account as if we had done it ourselves. That's remarkable. One of the images that Paul could use here is actually coming from Isaiah when he's talking about the filthy rags that one has in our sin. We're just filthy rags. Even our good works are filthy rags. Because they still don't perfectly conform to the righteous requirements of the law or the righteous requirements of a holy God. And what happens in our salvation is that Christ puts on those filthy rags. And on the cross, he pays the penalty for all of our law-breaking. He pays the penalty for all of our lack of love. He prays for all of our sins of omission and commission. All of it, Christ pays the penalty for on the cross. And then in a sweet exchange, his righteousness, his cloak of perfect righteousness is put on us. And that's what Paul's trying to highlight here. There is no righteousness of our own that comes through the law. There's a righteousness that comes through faith in Christ. He is our righteousness. And imagine standing there in a robe of Christ's perfect righteousness, the hubris of thinking, now I'm going to add merit badges to that, right? Like the Boy Scouts or Girl Scouts when they get merit badges for doing anything. It's ridiculous to even think. There's nothing to add to or to take away from it, is there? God has declared you righteous. He has made you and declared you righteous in Christ. You are not your own, but you belong to him. And it's recognized that this depends on faith, but faith, too, is a gift. God gives us everything we need. That's why I wanted to read that verse in the opening chapter of Philippians, where it says, For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. You ever see that even the faith to believe is a gift? That's not an achievement. We weren't smarter than our neighbors. We weren't wiser. We weren't more deserving in any other way. We were all equally ruined in sin. We were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together in Christ. By grace you have been saved. And we recognize that the faith itself is a gift. That's why over and over throughout Scripture, it says that we don't, what, what do we have to boast in? We don't boast in ourselves. We don't boast in our resume. We don't boast in our works. We don't boast in our accomplishments. We boast in Christ and Him alone. He is the author, perfecter, and finisher of our faith. He is our faithful sacrifice. He is our righteousness. And He is our Savior now and always. And we have been given the Holy Spirit the eternal Holy Spirit who causes us to be born again, gives us belief, unites us to Christ, and seals us until the day of redemption. And we continue to grow in his grace, being more and more conformed to the image of Christ. But Paul here really wants to warn against the false gospel. Don't be deceived. Beware of the dogs. Beware of the evildoers. Beware of the mutilation. He wants to make sure that we understand this gospel. And so I want to conclude where Paul starts in the first verse of the passage that we read. He said, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write these same things to you is no trouble to me, and it is safe for you. Rejoice in the Lord. He's not necessarily saying, 
rejoice in your circumstances here. But he's saying rejoice in the Lord, Jesus Christ, the one who he's unpacking, the one who he's talked about here. And he said, it is no trouble for me to write these things to you. It's safe for you. This is his passion and his burden as an apostle. This is my passion and burden as a minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I have nothing better to tell you this morning than about Jesus Christ and him crucified and risen. It's safe for you to hear that again. It's safe for you to hear again that you are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, for the glory of God alone, according to the word of God alone. Anything else puts you in danger. Anything else puts you in grave danger of coming coming under the condemnation of, of the Father. And so he's saying here, rejoice in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's no trouble for me to write these things to you, and it's safe for you. Christ is your safety. He is your refuge. He is your fortress. There is salvation in no one else. There is righteousness in no one else. There is eternal life in no one else. There is forgiveness in no one else. And so in our call to worship, we heard Christ say, Come. Come. You who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly 